Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. All right, good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday morning in Memphis, which means it's time for us to bring you another episode of Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR. Uh, Meanwhile in Memphis, what is it? It's a weekly radio show and podcast brought to you with the organization we work for, which is New Memphis. New Memphis is a nonprofit that works every day to transform our city through the power of connection. We truly work to activate, develop, and retain the most important resource our city has, which, as we believe, is its people. And this show helps us do that. You know, it helps us uplift the stories of those people in Memphians who are putting in the work and making an impact in our community every day. Um, So thank you so much for tuning in with us. My name is Christy Mullen, and I am one part of the co-host duo of this show with my friend and CEO, Anna Mullins-Ellis, but she is on hiatus for the next couple of weeks on truly what is a much, much needed vacation. So I am flying solo in a little capacity today. So, you know, we can apologize for the wild tangential ride we may go on because we know I love to talk. So, but... Luckily, my fearless producer, colleague, and friend, Anna Thompson, is here. And yes, we have a plethora of Annas. And introduce yourself to the people, A.T. Hey, hey, everybody. (laughs) If you are a loyal listener of Meanwhile in Memphis, you might remember me from some episodes at the end of the year. But it really doesn't matter if you know who I am, who (laughs) our show is. Or who our guests are, because I promise you that their insights are going to be so amazing that you will not want to turn the dial. So you are in for a treat (laughs) today. I agree wholeheartedly, and I'm super excited to get to do this with A.T., which is what I call her. So when you hear me refer to her as A.T., I do mean Anna Thompson, but I'm never going to be able to say Anna Thompson. It's just not in me to say. It's a term of endearment around here. So I'm super excited to get to do this with her for the next few episodes, and Today is a very special episode because it is one of our TED episodes. And, you know, if you haven't tuned in before, you may be like, you know, Christy, what's a TED episode? I don't know what that means. Great question, audience. And if you didn't ask that, just pretend you did. I'm going to tell you. (laughs) So a TED episode is basically this special episode where we interview past speakers of TEDx Memphis and we play their TED Talks live on air for you. Um, if you're unfamiliar with TEDx Memphis or, you know, you may not be super familiar with the TED brand as a whole, simply put, TED is a global community that welcomes people from all walks and disciplines and cultures who seek, you know, a deeper understanding of the world to just bring their big and innovative ideas to the stage through something they get to call TED Talks. Um, TEDx Memphis then brings the spirit and ideas of that big global TED stage to the local level of our community each year. And New Memphis is super lucky to get to be a part of that. And we actually host the event and invite the members of our community, like you who are listening, to submit their bright ideas to have a chance to take the TEDx stage. So it's very exciting. Our event is planned this year for October 30th. It's going to be at the Levitt Shell. And we just placed a call for speakers. So Please visit TEDxMemphis.org. I believe it may be .com. I think it's .com. I think it's like we get confused. We have so many .orgs and .coms, but TEDxMemphis.com, it'll come up if you just type in TEDxMemphis in your search bar. So, But if you have a great idea and you're listening or you know someone you think would be perfect to take the TED stage, send them to the website. They can apply right there to give a talk. Um, so on that note, I'm not going to take up any more in the air in the room. I'm going to just feed into our guests. So today we have Dr. David Schwartz. He is a New Memphis LDI graduate. He is a New Memphis board member, an award-winning medical doctor, a community supporter, and professor and chair at the Department of Radiology on Onco- wait, sorry, Radiation Oncology at UTHSC School of Medicine. He received his BA at Stanford University and his MD at the University of California, Los Angeles. And in 2019, he gave a TED Talk with us titled, Who Says Kids Can't Cure Cancer? So let's just go ahead and roll into the show today. I will also, I would, sorry, Christy, oh, yes, sorry, please. I didn't mean no. to steal the mic I back love from it. you, but we would be remiss if we did not talk about Dr. Schwartz's amazing role in the COVID prevention in the this Mid-South community. So um, Perfect interruption, A.T. Yeah, so I don't know how much we're going to get because we have so much to get to talk yes. to him about, but I wanted to make sure that everybody was well aware that... 
Some of the first COVID testing sites at Tiger Lane and in the Fraser community were the brainchild of Dr. Schwartz. I didn't even know that. I'm learning something new today. So he he's truly, he was named, I think, uh, Memphis Business Journal, one of their healthcare heroes I for did, 2020. Yes. And that is a big reason why. Oh, wow. And so we are so, so lucky to have him in studio with us today and to kind of get to pick his brain about you know, why he does what he does, how he does what he does, and why he thinks that medicine and, like, social things, you know, how they intersect. Yes, how they intersect is said beautifully. Thank you, Chris. Yes, I was like, but no, that's a great point, Andy. I didn't even think to, he just does so many amazing community things for Memphis. It's just kind of, we an hour is not enough time to cover it all, but guys, we're going to try. <laughs> yes, we, we really will try. He is a gem in our city, and we are lucky yes. to have him. So on that note, again, yeah. we'll, we'll roll in. Let's to go talk to Doctor Schwartz. <laughs> all right, guys, Doctor. David Schwartz is here in the podcast studio with us. Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, sir. How are you? Really good. Good. It's nice to be here. I want to congratulate you. You Thank have you. one of the most COVID compliant, COVID safe <laughs> interview spaces. I even have a can of Lysol here. You do. Yes. We're always be ready. <laughs> if I pass off on my mask, you know how to resuscitate, yeah. right? Okay, good. Yeah, I do. I am CPR certified. <laughs> Fair. Um, it's probably lapsed a little bit, but I can remember. You I know? knew I, I felt recall. comfortable for a reason. <laughs> Perfect. I love that for us. Um, so I'm really glad that you were able to find the time to be with us today. And when I think about it, I think you're actually the first medical doctor we've had on the show. So that's second, either good second, or bad. Second medical doctor. Second, do- second, second medical, medical doctor. Dr. Oh. Scott Morris. That is true. I, I was know, oh. I was not here for that episode, so you are technically my first interview. Those are for big a shoes doctor. to fill. Yep. So I, <laughs> I I I guess I'm both humbled and proud to be following in those footsteps. Yeah. Perfect. That's the perfect answer. Look at you. You're so good at this. <laughs> so I kind of want to like. welcome, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I, so with, since we have you, like I kind of before we dive into your TED Talk and all of that goodness, sure. I kind of want to just like start back from the beginning. Think back to your childhood. Like, did you always want to be a doctor? One of that's what a Wow. <laughs> that's a long time ago, first off. And um, evidently. Your first memory mm-hmm. as a child that you can remember as an, let's say, as an adult, mm-hmm. supposedly is predictive of what you become later in life. Really? And so if, you, if your first memory is something of like being hurt or some kind of medical misfortune that happens to you as a kid, it predicts for being a doctor or a nurse or yeah. somebody in health. My first memory is of having the worst sunburn like ever <laughs> on a family trip to Palm Springs. Really? So it was it was preordained. You were just destined from <laughs> one singular sunburn is how uh, you became the doctor that's really, in front of us now. It was a really bad sunburn, <laughs> actually. I'm probably going to have melanoma everywhere. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that's so interesting. So, like, here you are now. Um, you, I mean, you yeah. are a doctor. You kind of, was that always the dream, no, though, even as in, you grew up? I, in, you know, in all seriousness, yeah. actually, kids were part of the reason I got interested in medicine. I, I was halfway through college. Mm. Um, I was in literature major. Oh, wow. In school and did not have any explicit desire to become a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a camp counselor ever since high school, um, for local camps, local day camps. And I got, um, proselytized by a former, uh, counselor at Camp Ronald McDonald. Oh. In L.A. So I grew up in Los Angeles. And so this is one of the two original summer camps for kids with cancer and or Mm -hmm. with terminal illness. And so I was a counselor at Camp Ronald McDonald between sophomore and junior year of college. And quite literally, that that was a formative experience for me. I really decided to become a doctor. And in fact, ever since that point, I wanted to be cancer, a cancer doctor. Yeah, so that yeah. was like that was going to be my next question actually for you. Um, was kind of uh, choosing your specialty to me as a doctor seems like almost like a choose your own adventure, but like on an insanely like amplified level. <laughs> well, so like, how do you even how do you do that? Like, how do you even start? Um, uh, being a doctor. 
Yeah, well, really slow. Um, <laughs> a lot of school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but like I mean, like when you get to do that you have point. rim shots in this <laughs> in the studio? Um, the it, it come honestly in my experience, it's people. Okay. Um, it's like, what are your favorite? If you look back at school, like, mm-hmm. what are your favorite classes? And it's always typically the best teachers, right? Yeah. The subject matter is incidental. I'm not saying that that isn't important, but I went into college not expecting to do science. Um, I hadn't taken biology um, until I got to junior year because I had to catch up to be able. So I thought I was going to do something like law. Right. Or literature or something incredibly um, difficult to make a living with. And um, <laughs> as an art major, do, I feel yeah. you. There you go. <laughs> Journalism over here. Yeah. So I'm with I, you. I'm glad, you know, I, I commiserate with your You're parents. You're among with friends. Your parents. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so, how do you choose? I mean, for me, it, I think the most profound influence was the people around me mm-hmm. and the people I was learning from. And those don't always include people in school. Yeah. So perhaps the most instructive folks in my life were the were the actual campers at Ronald McDonald. Mm-hmm. I so you're in in our med school we um we had to do a project where we interviewed or did some kind of interface with patients um as first year students. So this is back when you know at the very beginning of medical school was becoming a bit more humanistic. You know, touch. We want to call it touchy feely, yeah. or whether just a bit more human or patient centric. Yeah. Yeah. And I went back to my former camp kids, so I actually interviewed, and I actually was able was invited back to meet with their families and parents, and to to ask them what was it like to be diagnosed with cancer. Mm. What was it like to have to go through cancer with your parents? Um, coping with it, mm-hmm. Jeez, and yeah. he, and so the 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 thing I learned is that the kids in a lot of ways grew up so fast, yes, that they actually ended up comforting their parents as opposed to the other way around, and so that's that's in a, in one sense intimidating mm-hmm. that you you know that you, I never lived through that kind of trauma, um until maybe you know a good example is as a collective trauma is COVID, mm-hmm. you know like this yeah. is an opportunity for us to understand and not take for granted health. And now, you know, moving forward, you know, how do you help one another? How do you project positivity that leads to healing and resilience across everybody's, you know, radar screen is a really important part of life. Mm -hmm. So that was, I think, you know, that's what led to me being a cancer doctor is that, okay, I could have patients. I mean, it's, of course, profound to do cancer medicine. Yeah. But it's also very, um, uh, in, it's, it, it's, it's both grand and very individualized. So you get a chance to really be able to get to know patients mm-hmm. and families because they invite you in because they understand how critical it is to have a partnership in such an extreme circumstance. Yeah. So, You're right. You're their lifeline. Kind <laughs> I mean, of. Literally. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's interesting to me that you – had those experiences and you interviewed those campers and you weren't i guess scared off by that you almost like ran toward the roar of it instead of being like oh actually this is too much to handle like i don't want to do that like that's too hard like that Uh, that i think speaks to character as well i i appreciate that (laughs) i I hope my mom's listening um i i i i think that's part of the human experience when someone invites you in to mm-hmm. listen to the story of them being at their most vulnerable, it's a prof- profound compliment. I mean, that's a, the, it's like anything in life that's intimate. You're being invited into something that only you get to screen. And that's a big component of healthcare and of medicine. And not losing that is really important and really difficult mm-hmm. in the kind of realities yeah. of American healthcare. Wow, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's not something for everybody. No, yeah. because you, you're very much in the thick of it because you have like a unique thing where you are in the position to deliver very, very good news to people sometimes and almost the worst news they ever hear sometimes. And I'm just very interested in how you, how do you do that? 
like how do you prepare? I know it's training over time and now it's probably more innate to you. But in the beginning, like how do you start to train your mind to like be able to do that? Part, I mean, there are components and there actually are formal curricula. Mm-hmm that doctors can learn from, learn from, our nurses can learn from, yeah. our therapists can yeah. learn from. Yeah. So there are techniques to get better at it. Um, interviewing, just like, you know, your, you know, the experiences, <laughs> even if it's radio or what have you, it's, it's giving space for someone to be able to open up and not be uncomfortable with what you may right. uncover, right? There's also, I think, a natural component where you just want there, I think it's, there are some people who are more naturally curious than others, mm-hmm. and that's what makes them Larry Kings. <laughs> you know, it's, you know. And, yeah. uh, I think there's a reality to yeah. that. Um, for me, it's almost like a part. I mean, there's there's a component to healthcare and of cancer care that's psychic pay, mm. where you feel that you're being compensated in a way above and beyond for all the horribleness that right. you have to deal with right. and all of the work you got to do that serves as a payoff for having done that and it's that intimacy and then how do you actually do it well you don't just become good instantly right. you really do yeah i'm sure there are some people who are natural that yeah, you know, are natural at telling people they're yeah. going to die I mean, oh, but no one's really gosh. wants to be good at that no no, no one i don't um, think that's just no one's born with that skill quite frankly as you get but as you get older you start, uh, you become more mortal. Mm-hmm. And the conversations I have with patients that I give bad news to become more personal to me mm-hmm. because I'm not, you know, I'm closer to, there. I have more yesterdays than tomorrows, I mean, yeah. technically speaking. So it becomes something that I can actually empathize with much more profoundly. Mm-hmm. So these conversations are not providing information to, they're sharing information with. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking with someone and we're going through that, that narrative and explanation of what certain information means for a patient and right. what we do next, but we do it together. Right. And so the trauma is actually shared. I don't think that there's any way I can grade that as good or mm-hmm. bad. It's just the way that I've managed that. Right. Yeah. It's interesting the way that you described the like growing empathy, because I feel like to your point, the like last year and COVID as a, a collective trauma like that has made a lot of people a lot more empathetic in a way mm-hmm. that as some of us didn't know we needed, I think. And other others of us probably knew other people needed that empathy <laughs> a lot more in life. Um, but it it kind of has been, I don't want to say a great equalizer that makes it sound like it was a positive thing and it was not. But in the, in the realm of empathy, I think it's opened a lot of eyes and taken a lot of blinders off. So I think that's interesting I to hope that so. conversation. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, part of the irony of COVID is that it was so isolating. Mm-hmm. If for those, and I, granted, this is, there's a spectrum of experience. You know, for those blessed enough to not have to go into a job yeah. and expose themselves, yeah, it's an isolating experience. Right. And I ca- and I think m- you have to be more proactive in socialization, but also can recede. Um, and so you get a very, I think, a very unfortunate lesson in how interconnected we are. But to also be able to empathize with those who cannot plug out of the system. And that, mm-hmm. to me, has been part of the eye-opener from a provider standpoint is what are the things that touch upon the quality of my care and the effectiveness of my care that have nothing to do with my care? Mm-hmm. And traditionally, docs have been very nervous of approaching social determinants of health, mm-hmm. uh, things that are outside the realm of an office, of a clinic, or of a hospital, because we don't have control over those things. Right, right. Um, and we don't want to be responsible for failures that are in the, you know, the outside of our control or purview. Um, and the reason I came to Memphis was to be thrown off kilter by such things. Mm. I mean, to work in the disparities, um, arena and the health disparities arena to actually be uncomfortable with locks of control and partnership with folks who may or may not want to engage in the help that I want to give. And that's 
That's big. Yeah. It's cool, <laughs> but it's cool. It's it is cool, and it's yeah. a second career. I mean, I'm a cancer doctor who's now like a a population level sociologist. I was about to say, yeah, it's almost yeah. A so yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It's just you never really hear people talk about it, kind of from that perspective, but like you talking about the social determinants is actually like you kind of flawlessly led into like the topic of your TED talk in 2019. So just kind of like to do a little bit of like table setting for those that are listening, you decide you're going to do the TED talk. (laughs) How does like the topic kind of seems innate to you and what you do for a living, but like really how did you decide, okay, this is what I want to do. This is the big idea I want to bring to the stage. People need to hear this. Um, Cause I, it was really near and dear to me. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that's the number. You can't tell a story well if you don't care about the story. Right. Um, There's got to be some emotion there. Yeah, of course. Um, I also get the sense that, particularly in Memphis, it's you know when you talk about the opportunity or lack of opportunity for kids, it's such a resonant thing. Mm-hmm. We see it in front of our eyes. You know, you know, kids that with or without. That's a big deal here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something hidden away mm-hmm. that, so I think it was something that I was hoping the audience would really be able to connect with. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll confess it wasn't like I, doing a Ted talk is a bit daunting as right. a, cl- as a, <laughs> as a doctor, cause we don't give talks like a Ted yeah. talk. We give PowerPoint you have like lectures and like presentation type deals. So yeah, so so memorizing a talk, I mean, without, you don't without cue cards yeah. or without <laughs> yeah, note cards. Well, stuff. there there were some people who did that, I know. and I really couldn't it's believe it. It's I was a no like, no. It's I, a Ted no no. I I totally understand, but I was kind of jealous because <laughs> I went through a considerable like, amount of. Why didn't I yeah. think of that? <laughs> No, absolutely. That all, that, that all being said, I, no, I actually can look back and say, damn, that was pretty, that was pretty awesome to yeah. be able to do it. We don't necessarily in medicine memorize our talks. Mm-hmm. I will say that that is something, r- briefly to interrupt you, that Dr. Scott Morris did say. He said he actually uses pieces of his TED Talk to recruit for his program because he said he never had to succinctly yeah. memorize no. something. <laughs> it's not a joke. In that way before. So he said it it worked to his advantage because he'd never had to call it down, but also have the through line and mm-hmm. all of those other things. So he was like, it's actually quite helpful. So thank you, because now I have it in my back pocket. So <laughs> I hope it was that way for and you. That, and that, and that, that is you distill, because you really do. Yeah. You're given such a short period of time to communicate as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And because it's a topic that you care a lot about, you want to get as much out there as you possibly can without overwhelming. Right. Um. In medical talks, generally speaking, there is no hard and fast time limit, so you don't get a hard stop. You don't get Mm -hmm. you don't get a you don't get a hook that's pulling you off the stage. Right. You don't have a band starting to play and like like tonight show, like the Oscars or whatever. (laughs) Just plays you off the stage. Exactly. They don't shoot you off the stage. the The other thing is is you have slides, and I had slides in the TED Talk, Mm -hmm. but they're not very many. Yeah, it's very minimal. It's just a cue, almost, almost, and they're just like images for the most part. There's yeah, can let you know where you are. (laughs) So the the key is like so if if anyone's listening who would be potentially preparing to do something like this, um, number one, speak from the heart. Number two. Make sure that you're not the only person in the room who cares about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and number three, give it again and again and again and again and again to people who know nothing about what you're talking about. Um, that way you know you're communicating. Oh, I like that tip. That's a very good one because I think that is a piece that people sometimes forget. Even with doing this show, sometimes we'll say things and we'll use different words. And I'm like, not everybody knows what <laughs> things mean. Or like, acronyms. Yeah, acronyms like acronyms. Too. Like and I'm going to get into that, like your TED Talk reference is STEM. And I was like, you know what? I know what that means, but some of our listeners may not. Like it very much depends on like your vernacular or what you do or where you gr- – like everyone doesn't know what everyone's talking about. So I think that is like a very cool thing you just said about how you gave it to other people to see how it's coming across. And especially I'm assuming you gave it to people from different places in your life. Yeah. So like it, you very much had a widespread. So I love that tip. I think yeah. it's important. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, and also watch people who are really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, to be honest, like Doctor Schwartz. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I, uh, I, you know, it's actually to be honest, it's like go to a, get the TED app. I mm-hmm. mean, for crying out loud, I mean, you can learn probably more from that than from school. Uh, <laughs> and that's saying something. That here. is kind of saying we something. We do not condone <laughs> learning more from the TED app on Meanwhile. <laughs> <laughs> um. But it's like so. That's like medicine too. It's like we're, yeah. we're, we don't do didactics in the in the field. We do apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, you watch people who are really awesome at it and yeah. copy. You learn by yeah. yeah. Like I think you even say that in part of your talk. You say like you rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah, like, it's, oh, it's yeah. Always, you and see that's, it, you do it. You, you teach see it. one, see one, do one, teach one. Yeah, that is that's one of the laws of medical training. Interesting. Yeah. This is like, I'm always so fascinated by people that do medical training because my world is so kind of removed from it with like my job training. Like, obviously, I was an art major, Anna Thompson over here, it is journalism. So it's not something like you bring in a different perspective than something how we had to learn, you know, in well, our schooling. A curious person is always um, impressed and awed by people who are really good at what they enjoy mm-hmm. doing. Um, I, like I I'm that. very, no, I'm very, I, I would love to hear more about art. Right? Yeah. Or don't and, tempt me. I am, Dr. Yeah. Schwartz. She just and, went to a Picasso exhibit. <laughs> too, exactly. So. But, but these are windows into human experience. Yeah. And, um, to say that that's not a part of healthcare or, or good medicine mm-hmm. is ridiculous. I mean, that's why I art agree. and medicine is such a big deal. That's why music and medicine is such a big deal. Um, that's why literature and just anything that is able to capture in a very personable way, in a very kind of just visceral, mm-hmm. uh, connected way is, is such an important part of life in general, but also to restore the vitality and health of life. Wow. I think you just like, you did a better job than I ever could have done segueing into us introducing your TED Talk. Oh, cool. So we're going to play that live on the air, guys. We're going to roll into Dr. David Schwartz's 2019 TEDx Memphis Talk, Who Says Kids Can't Cure Cancer? I work for cancer patients. There's no easy intro for that, and it's not an easy job. I really do give the worst terrible news you could possibly imagine for folks. But I also give some of the best news to people. One of the great joys I get from doing this job is that bouncing between these two extremes, I'm invited and I can bear witness to some of the most profound time points and events in the human experience. And it's not the toughest job out there. I think, looking back across even history, I think of a school teacher believing in the common human experience, working to teach in the segregated South in the early 1960s. How low were her lows? But then thinking about the other end, the other side of the human experience, how would these smiles impact her? This is an iconic picture of two Mississippi Freedom School students. Freedom schools. Let that sink in. Freedom schools were tuition-free, temporary, almost like pop-up schools for African-American children in the Civil Rights era. They were a concerted, purposeful part of the Civil Rights movement. Uh, At the time of their creation, they mostly took place in Mississippi in the summer of 1964. And at that time, for context, Mississippi was one of two states that did not require formal, standardized education for any of its children. Black and white kids had separate curriculum, separate school budgets, and desegregating their schools. I don't need to tell you that story. And despite all that headwind, these schools dared to be awesome. They were standardized. They were meticulous. They exposed kids to STEM before decades before STEM was cool. They even exposed kids to public health disparities with cold, hard numbers that impacted their own communities in the South. Now, these freedom schools lasted for just, in this form, for only one summer, but their influence lives on to this day. 
the brilliant educators that originated them understood that education is just a, one part of a longer journey to shared universal human dignity. Good schools are able to point students to a good job and a good career, and that's great. But they're able to point to so much more. They're able to point to good housing, to better groceries, to better shopping, public transport, to opportunities for health. And we doctors are finally taking to heart that the healthcare that we provide is not the same as health. We are prioritizing and scientifically studying the social determinants of health. These are the environmental factors that holistically determine whether a person, you, me, anyone, thrives or succumbs to illness. I see these factors every day in my clinic as a cancer doctor, and I want to convince you of that. And to do that, I'm going to transport you to my clinic via this map of Memphis. For those not lucky enough to live in Memphis, to orient, this is the, the Mississippi River winding southward. On its shores is the downtown central Memphis region, and further on, the eastern metropolitan suburbs. You'll notice that this map is subdivided, and it's subdivided into census tracts. And those census tracts are color-coded. The deeper, the richer the color, the richer the neighborhood. Now you'll also notice some circles, and those circles are a terrible punchline. Those circles represent the proportion of my patients in my clinic who are not making it through their treatment on time because of social obstacles, putting their cure at risk. You'll also notice that the circles are two different colors, representing the two major racial groups of the city, black and white. Both colors, both races are impacted by this. Cancer is colorblind, but you'll notice that those colors don't live next to one another. They're not neighbors. You'll also probably not be surprised that these circles are not there for the same reasons and for the same social obstacles on either, uh, on either side of the color divide. This is a classic snapshot of segregation, in this case of health. And it walks hand in hand with segregation of housing, child poverty, hunger, just about any social ill that you can think of. So to take a step back and to place this into a proper perspective so that we're not blinded by the headlights and we can actually be called to action, how do we break through and disrupt long-standing inequality that impacts our children, our communities, and even our cancer patients. Well, we can't do it with one-off solutions. We have to be thinking about combo shots. We need to be leveraging talent and resources which don't obey the old limits that we have grown accustomed to. And you can ask, what is that? Wrong question. Who is that? I want to introduce you to some people who can cure more than cancer. These are some courageous cancer epidemiologists out in the field investigating root causes for cancer risk in the homeless population here in downtown Memphis. They have scoured the medical literature. They have looked for difficult problems that impact their own neighborhoods. They have conducted a scientific study. They've collected the data. They have presented this data to their peers and to their mentors. And they've just entered middle school. I want to introduce you to the cancer-caring heroes of Project CLIMB. Project CLIMB, cancer learning in my backyard, where some of the smallest scientists can launch the biggest ideas. And so let me set the scene. You're in sixth or in, you're in ninth grade. For me, ninth grade might be up here. <laughs> um, you have been exposed to STEM in your classes, physics, biology, human, uh, human sciences, but never real deal research. And you're given the chance to do real deal research by applying for a cancer grant. Just like a real scientist sticking out her neck, asking and answering new questions. And kid, that cancer grant is yours. You ask the questions, you develop the skill sets, you introduce yourself to 
adult mentors who will help you find those answers, and you put those ideas out into the public square where you can debate and move on to new questions. And perhaps most importantly of all, those answers circle back directly to your own community. Why? Because you've anchored your research in cancer issues and risks that impact your own family, your own neighbors, your own community. And because you are a kid, you ha may have perspectives into quiet, hidden social cancer risks that your adult mentors may never have imagined. And in return, those mentors may point you to a scientific career that you may never have imagined. You, your community, your city's health, your city's healthcare system, all these boats can rise. And this is a blueprint of this. Don't squint. I'm showing this to you to convince you we're sweating the details. We're developing machinery to really get this job done. Any machine, if it's to work, has to depend on a simple, doable design. And ours is as simple and as doable as it gets, and I know it because it's what got a guy like me through medical school. This is the secret sauce in which medical students simmer to become seasoned doctors. See one, do one, teach one. Pretty simple. Watch an expert do an impossible task and then do it with your own hands. Lather, rinse, repeat. Do it a million times. Then, to reinforce you lear your learning, you pass it forward, hopefully as a mentor to another student. No magic wands, just impactful learning. Now, to make this machinery work, you need mechanics. A good scientist is a humble scientist. She knows when to ask for help, and we've asked her help from a remarkable collection of superstars. Now, just to, just to point out a couple of faces, I want to point out two folks who are leading this project with me. Michelle Martin from UT Medical School, who works alongside me. Idia Thurston from U University of Memphis. But we're surrounded by other smiling faces. And these faces represent no fewer than four central Memphis schools with STEM teaching experience, three universities, two community advocacy groups with long-standing histories working with Memphis youth, and one national center dedicated to STEM teaching excellence. We're applying, well, deep in the process of applying for long-term funding from the National Cancer Institute. That's where real grants come from. And we've been blessed with local partnership from the Pyramid Peak Foundation to start a Fundamentals of Science class, which we are going to start this spring, but we're not waiting. I hope you've been asking yourself some obvious questions. Why kids? And can kids really do research like this? And folks, we're building skyscrapers. Our kids need to be standing on floors above our heads, and they're already pretty much there. Remember those young epidemiologists that we're talking about? This is their work. I'm going to show you slides from them. This is unfiltered. This is their uh, statement of work and their original source documentation, which is stuff I would use to write my own grants. This is them out in the field. This is utterly courageous and fearless. Many of these girls took me aside and told me they had never spoken to a, a homeless person before. They didn't even think about how homelessness impacts a person's health, and yet here they are. And this is their data. One of dozens of slides that they showed, looking at things that adult researchers have not given enough attention to, the attitude of the homeless to their own health. And to top it off, they professionally showed, showcased their data at a scientific forum that they held for their peers, their mentors, and for an incredibly humbled cancer doctor. And I remain humbled by how limitless these kids are. And I'm also humbled by how tall the shoulders are that we have to stand on to reach higher, to mend old fractures in a broken world that we share but we are called to climb, to reach higher. We cannot confuse humility with fear, and we are about to be surrounded and guided by many fearless climbers. Memphis, come climb with us. Thank you.
All right, guys, we are back in studio with Dr. David Schwartz, and you just heard his TEDx Memphis talk here on Meanwhile in Memphis, coming to you live from WYXR Memphis. And so let's get into this talk, because right at the beginning, I will I will confess, I hadn't heard your talk before. Um, I was researching. I knew you were going to be a guest, thanks to Anna Thompson over here for securing you. And I was like, okay, doing my research. And Preparation's always good. Look, I <laughs> over-prepare. Everyone on this team knows if anyone's going to be prepared, it's going to be me. Um, so, but like right at the beginning of your talk, you kind of pulled me in because you opened with a line and you didn't say like, I'm a doctor of oncology or like I work with this kind of patient. You said like, I work for cancer patients. That's the line you said. And I just, and I'm like, do you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> but no, like, that's just not really a way I've ever heard someone in your profession speak about their work. Um, and I was just, I really wanted to ask you kind of from your perspective, what made you frame it that way? And important, more importantly, like, why did you choose that verbiage to wow. say that? That's the first time I've ever been asked that. Oh, that's really? actually really cool. Okay. Uh, and I think that really is probably... And more of an, an innate mm -hmm. reflex of mine is that um, traditionally healthcare is healthcare centric. So doctors, so when you go to a doctor's office, it's around their schedule, right? right. You oh, sit yes. there like in your tush. <laughs> oh forever. yes, oh yes. <laughs> so um, the whole gig about you know is you know with empowered. You know, uh, millennial slash centennial mm -hmm. healthcare now under <laughs> now all being done by app and by telemedicine yeah. is to make it more consumer centric and i hate that word in healthcare is right. consumer in a certain way there is a consumption of a service mm -hmm. and i am a service provider but at, at at day's end yeah i mean i think it should be framed around the person who is re requiring help mm -hmm. who's asking for help agree to get better that is number one it's a profound ask right mm -hmm. and so i'm privileged to be able to receive that ask and number two, it's 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 not like I can do something by myself to create health. It mm -hmm. has to be a partnership, right? Otherwise, you know, and and perfect example, I do throat cancer. That's like the number. That's my big specialty. Oh wow! If you don't stop smoking, mm -hmm. why are you using me? Mm -hmm. You know, what's mm -hmm. my point? Right. Is it to simply administer something and feel important about myself, or am I trying to actually provide a service? Mm -hmm. But that service is a partnership where the person who needs that help is working with me mm -hmm. and sees it as something where I'm working for, toward, maybe perhaps better, better preposition is towards, mm -hmm. towards health. That helps me. Yeah. I mean, it helps me have a, a healthier world and you know, I'm paying it forward for someone who will hopefully step out of their way to help someone else, another neighbor in need, in, in the capacity of their job. That's super cool because in your talk as well, like you led into talking about like the Freedom School of of Mississippi, which I thought was really cool because I am a Mississippi native. So like you kind of talked about oh, that. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. You, you I, I, that, that, to me, that was the most, look, that that's actually what, to be honest with you, when I read first, you know, this is years before mm -hmm. the TED Talk, when I read about John Lewis mm -hmm. and I read about what's, so the largest by numbers Civil rights organization working in the Deep South during during that era were students, mm -hmm. the SNCC, okay, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That's John Lewis. Yeah. Now, it isn't just him. And I don't right. want to sit there and single him out because we all know the name. Right. But these kids decided that as part of the civil rights movement to not just work on, you know, the fairly self-evident open discrimination, but to think about building. Mm -hmm. And to build within education, um, and then you go through this, and then if you get interested and you start going through source documents of what these students and well, to be honest with you, with help with obviously um, teachers, they put together a real curriculum, mm -hmm. and and the you know the last point I could make is that, that curriculum was profound mm -hmm. because it talked about black versus white health disparities. And we're teaching it to the kids themselves. And those disparities were no, no, they didn't pull a punch. Right. This is death. They were talking about to kids who are in, who are in the sixth, seventh, eighth grade. They were fully transparent about Absolutely. the raw data of what you was happening. You are going to live shorter time. They are literally telling kids at that age, 
you are probably not going to live as long as a white child. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that's inspiring. And why focus on kids? Why focus on education when it seems so far afield of what I do? Mm -hmm. um, what, what's the point of treating a, a wound with, you know, a deep wound with a Band-Aid? I mean, why, why stop with just fixing, you know, a, a festering wound when you could be dealing with the infection from the start, mm -hmm. which is opportunity yeah, and destroying poverty at its source? Yeah, you're definitely, instead of trying to adjust the symptoms, you're dealing with the root issue. And that's what good health care is. I feel like that's where we should end, but we're not going to. Like, Surprise. We have so many more questions, but that was just perfect. Like, because like you said, those teachers were really leading that path of like, yeah. in your talk, you referenced it. They were introducing these students to STEM before STEM as we know it was even a thing. True. For those listening who may not know, what is STEM? STEM is really science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Yes. And um, all of those things that scared the bejesus out of me. Um, <laughs> Same. Um, me and math are still I mean, not all, friends. So remember, I, I was a literature major yes. originally before becoming biology. Right. But in today's, it's the currency of the realm now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not necessarily something to be scared of if you're not mathematically or scientifically mm -hmm. inclined because there's other components where, so critical thinking logic well that's computer programming mm -hmm. that's software so, so i like that thing i mean I that's soft software development is the ultimate in just log building logic mm -hmm. that's not equations it's really just the way that you think huh. um that's why stem is so effective for creating individually yeah individuals who are capable of critical thought mm -hmm. why do you think it's so important for like students to be exposed to those fields, not only in general, but like earlier on? Uh, relevance. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I mean, I, 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 and, and also to, I, I think there's a practical component mm -hmm. to it. I think you have to be competitive in a marketplace as a potential employee. Mm -hmm. And these are where a lot of the best jobs are going to be. Um, and it's also something that I believe the community needs. Memphis has not traditionally been very strong mm -hmm. in science and engineering. Yes, we have manufacturing jobs, but right. we're mostly logistics. We don't, you know, yeah. we don't make a lot. We, we, don't have an in, we don't have a strong engineering school here. Mm. I'm not saying we don't have it, but it's yeah. not, we're, we're not like California mm -hmm. or Texas. Um, we need that kind of expertise. And, you know, you tend to stay where you grow up. Yeah. I'd like to have some, some, uh, some kids who are growing up learning how to create more, you know, not just importing our talent to do medical devices at mm -hmm. a medical device company that just happens to be here. Why don't we have some folks, you know, some kids who are growing up to do it? Right. I think that is very important. And you kind of, you know, you pose the question in your talk, you know, how do we break through and disrupt that longstanding inequality? And you say it's not what we can do, but who can do it. And I think to your point of what you were just saying, like, these kids are the people who can do it. Yes. Like, they are the answer. And so you introduced the Project CLIMB in your talk, which is Cancer Learning in My Backyard, which is adorable. <laughs> um, but you did it primarily for sixth to ninth graders. Like, tell us a little bit about that. I know COVID really impacted your plan for that project. But, like, give, like let the audience a little, give a little uh, more detail on what happened there. Um, well, I mean, I, I think the premise, yeah. the actual idea behind it is pretty straightforward. Yeah, it still lives well, on. I, yeah, and, and I don't think this is something that necessarily needs to be interrupted mm -hmm. by any event. It's something that can be, a, you know, taken I and run with, with at any time. Um, the idea of taking the most relevant model mm -hmm. of science being performed in our country, which is grants. You apply for money from a funding agency. Mm -hmm. it, can be a, it can be the government um, with very transparent peer review, or it could be spontaneous philanthropic foundation-based support. Mm -hmm. But you still have to have an idea. You still have to have a question. You still have to be able to answer it. And you still have to then be able to move on from the answer to the next step. Um, why not teach a ninth grader that? Right. Doesn't make any sense not to. Other, as opposed to, you know, and, oh, I think that, you know, I would be neglectful to, to leave out. Why don't you make these topics that are directly applicable to day-to-day -to -day life for the kids? Yeah. 
And so um, I would ne- I won't take credit for all of the ideas here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just happened to have been introduced to the opportunity to go for uh, National Cancer Institute funding for this by Michelle Martin, who runs the entirety of our, you know, really kind of the major, she's the major, you know, workhorse leader um, who spearheads our health disparities work in cancer at the School of Medicine at mm-hmm. University of Tennessee, here at UTHSC. Yeah. Idia Thurston is the other partner in, in crime, who is the other <laughs> other primary investigator of this. She's a, she's a, a psychologist, mm-hmm. a child psychologist, very accomplished. Um, for better or worse, she got recruited away. Oh, okay. That's not good. Not good. No, but, not good. You know, no. we, we want to be happy for people, but we want them. No, it's like stay in Memphis. It's I great. W- exactly. <laughs> and so these. And so, did I learn from the, her? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so what are the root causes for for kids to f- fall off track in terms mm-hmm. of their development and ultimately into their overall success? Uh, I didn't even. I hadn't even thought about that, but. Again, what can I bring to a to a topic like that is really the opportunity to do what I do. Right. And so that's the element of apprenticeship that that is more of a natural fit for someone coming from my my career track. Right. And you you showed that picture in your TED talk, which I'm gonna let people know the link and we'll drop it when we drop the episode. But like you showed that picture in your talk of the students, like some of the students out in the field. Yeah. And it was like their first time to really see a a person and talk to them and do that kind of critical thinking about these matters. What did you kind of see as the results of that? Like, how did that impact how their minds worked after the process? I don't know. I mean, and I, I, because it's- I love you for being willing to say, I I don't know. I I have no idea. Yeah. And the reason why I don't know is because they were fearless enough to go out and talk to homeless folks about their health. I don't know. Am I, who's teaching who? Right. That's uh, I, I mean, that's a valid valid I thing to say. <laughs> do you understand? There's no so there is no literature right of cancer prevention in the homeless. Why? Oh, because we wow. are talking. I mean, essentially none. Yeah, I mean, I mean no. I, I mean, I, I've never thought about it, but like when you say it, it's well. Accurate. I mean, you're talking about a pretty existential circumstance right. where you don't even have housing. Right. Understand that your life expectancy without housing. It's one of those things that if you're on Adventure Man, you know, you're, you, you got to get shelter, mm-hmm. food, and water. Right. And you're missing <laughs> one of those in an urban setting. Right. Yeah. Pretty bad. Your life expectancy is not great. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you don't think about cancer because you got, think about this, bigger problems. You got pro- other priorities. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's tomorrow's um, problem. Today's yeah. problem yeah. is something different. And these kids decide to tackle that. Yeah. What do I have to teach them? <laughs> um. There, t- literally, that that was, uh, and I actually said this. So, so in Girls Inc., when they did this and they presented this mm-hmm. um, with the leadership of Girls Inc., and I- I'm just sitting there flabbergasted, you know, on a Saturday morning listening to this talk, and I'm, I'm, I think that was my initial reaction. It's like, thank you for teaching me something. Right. I never had actually gotten outside my own small little worldview to think about this. So. I didn't answer your question because I don't think yeah, I, I don't I, think I'm I'm worthy of answering it. You went beyond the question though, and I I love it the most when people are willing to say, you know, I don't know. Like I truly can't answer that, but this is the what I can say about oh, what you asked. I say that I thought, a lot. Well, I'm here <laughs> for it because I just I like it when people are upfront and honest about there's a lot of stuff we don't know as people. Like this is just one of the things like you have done all of this work. You have worked with these amazing people to try and build this program. And there are still so many things that you don't know. There's so many factors. Well, I mean, a good, and that's a, you know, you actually provide a segue for me because you kind of did ask this a little bit before. Mm-hmm. So what's next? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, COVID, COVID wasn't good to education. Right. It still isn't good to education. My kids, my own kids can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um uh, it, it obviously wasn't feasible to start doing things to push the needle in an educational front when you're just trying to tread water mm-hmm. and keep kids on track to learn at pace of what's expected. Right. Um, I would love, I mean, granted, we still are not completely dug out of COVID. I can, mm-hmm. I could go on and on about that, but at day's end, COVID was very hard on kids. Mm-hmm. 
it was particularly hard on families and parents and kids in at-risk communities. Um, These are challenges that I think, I mean, I am hoping that the pandemic uncovered and and laid bare as to the challenges we face as a collective. Mm -hmm. And this is not a responsibility for someone else to take care of. And so my my druthers, my hope is that down the road we reinvigorate climb at a time when it's safe. Right. And re-engage it with a, a more, I think, urgent purpose mm-hmm. that's lar- as part of a larger holistic collective of in, of engagement that really can bring everyone up to the same speed. And I, I'm seeing that now, whether it's the political realm, whether it's the kind of the cultural realm, at least in healthcare, is that the, you know, the tragedy of George Floyd, the tragedy of these protests have really, really brought to bear just how important it is to to not be blind to the fact that we have systemic issues that Mm -hmm. need to be addressed that, that are affecting people's lives in front of us. So that's where I'm hoping CLIMB eventually, once we get a bit more safe and into a new school year, can, can start to address you know, as just, I guess, a tangible example of something like that. Yeah. I think something interesting that you said and something that has kind of permeated throughout the whole time we've been talking, for me anyway, is that you've taken something that is your specialty, which would be science, I guess. You've you already had an interest in the social aspects of it. So I feel like you've already cracked the door a little bit wider to say, okay, it's not just this. This is not just my lane. I have this is my scope also. And then to say, what the kids did at Climb mm-hmm. kind of cracked it open a little bit more. And I, even talking about like with all of the opportunities that we have as a society, that it's not just any one person or any one sector's job to create a solution to that, that it is everybody's problem. It is everybody's opportunity and that we can work together to find those solutions that they all fit together like a puzzle. I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely, and I appreciate that. Um, we did do some stuff, right. you know, during the pandemic. We were able to go over to Crosstown High and and do little tiny focus groups mm-hmm. with some of the most engaged students who really kind of like this stuff. Yeah, and so and um, um, engaged teachers as well. Um, and we surveyed the students, and we wanted, you know, we want to be able to show that we moved the needles somewhat. Like, right. you know, what did you get out of these flex sessions? We would call them that, where you were flex just sessions. That's flex fun. sessions where you're yeah. you're kind of learning how to do um, problem based. You're flexing your muscles learning. of your brain. Well, a little it, bit. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that stood out as the highest ranking. I mean, not everything was perfect, but mm-hmm. there was there the the thing we had done. The the highest grade that we got from the kids is. Um, and I take no credit because this was the teachers who did this, um, <laughs> is did I feel listened to? Mm, that's a great question. Okay, and, and there's, that's profound. Okay, so, that, so do you feel, so does a kid feel that they're being listened to? And I think that there is nothing more important in parenting. There's nothing more important in teaching than to be 100% attentive and present for a child. Um, and I try to actively pursue this as a father, um, to stop and to look in the eye. That to me is perhaps the highest compliment a kid can give, that we're onto something that they feel engaged with. You don't have to be healthcare to do that. Mm-hmm. You could do that in law, you could do that in journalism, you could do that in art history, you can do that in sports, you can do that in music, you can do that in food, you can do that, you know, with you know, with whistling you know whatever you want to do <laughs> right. whistle while you work guys yeah <laughs> if you care about what you do you want to pass it along right. you do that by engagement but that engagement is saying okay you're you're a kid but i value you as an equal to, mm-hmm. in the ways yes. that are, right. are are reasonable that i think is when you really hit a kid's heart and I, that was, if I had to say something that I was most proud of being able to do, was looking at that mm-hmm. particular feedback. That's something I'd love to, you know, cross fingers. Yeah. We get enough vaccines and do enough arms, we're able to start doing that, you know, and we start doing elective things as yes. opposed to <laughs> right. reactive things for then, kids. Yeah, you get that perspective. Yeah. I mean, 
Well, just, you, yeah. yeah, like you ended your talk by um, quoting Frederick Douglass with his quote that says it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And I think what you were just speaking to really speaks volumes to that. And honestly, it's a, such a powerful quote always when you read it because it's like a smack of truth just <laughs> right across your face. But for those out there that are listening and they want to be a part of the solution and uplift the next generation to tackle disparities and help our community, where can they start? Uh, I think you can start with any laptop or, or phone and start learning. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, and, and, and that seems vague, but, um, I think the easiest thing is to start at what you're good at mm -hmm. and then start looking at opportunities in your, in your very own neighborhood or community of classes or some kind of you know, school outreach that's possible. You can also look at maps of where's your closest elementary school. Um, reach, I actually, and this is actually a big part of what we did. We, we reached out to different schools mm -hmm. and said, what do you need? Mm. That's all you got to ask. Right. Um, and anybody can do this. I'm not saying that this is something that you'll get, you know, po you, know you do have to provide something that a school and kids would want to be able mm -hmm. to be part of. But I think, one of the most important thing, aspects of even doing this is to become aware of just how vulnerable our kids are. Um, a lot is made of child poverty in Memphis, mm -hmm. um, but as a whole in the United States, we rank 29 out of 30 according to international metrics in childhood poverty. Mm -hmm. we, we have all told, this is from Urban Institute, 2015, 16. Yeah. 40% of kids everywhere in the country have at least one experience, at least one year of poverty or under being under the poverty line. 10% have over half of their childhood under the poverty line. You know what it is for African American children? If you believe what's the survey says, 75%, three wow. out of every four African American children spend at least one year under the poverty line. That, if you're not aware of that, you don't understand the problem. Right. You can't fix what you don't know. Yeah. So yeah. that that so these are the things you don't have to become a public health guru, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you have to understand, okay, what's the urgency? What's the problem? And why should then, I care? Yeah. Why should I care? Then what do I care most about that I can share with people? Mm -hmm. And then what's closest to me? So you think globally, act locally. There you that's a start. Um, that's what I did. That's you know, and and again, in fairness. I didn't instigate this. This was Michelle Martin coming mm -hmm. to me. I thank Michelle for this. So be have open ears. Right. <laughs> listen, like you said, be willing to what listen. Are you, you know, what are the things that, you know, someone comes along with, you know, hey, presents an opportunity, whether it's at work, at church, mm -hmm. uh, at the pool, you know, hey, I'm doing this kind of thing. Um, I'm going to tell you the most, the, co the, coolest, the, the coolest offers I get are when you talk about people's hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's what really drives them, you know, trips the trigger. And yeah. um, like the, you know, like, yeah, really into guitar. So you get, you start to learn like, okay, what are good, you know, what, what can I learn? That's how I ended up knowing what guitars to, to, to during COVID to learn on. <laughs> I was talking to someone who was yeah. taking guitar lessons. So these are the things you can just expose yourself to is by going after what people themselves really love to do. Right. So. Hopefully that's helpful. That is helpful. I think it's a cliche to say, but knowledge truly is power. Like, like I said, you can't fix what you're not aware of, what you don't know. So the first step is always to educate yourself on the issues that you're trying to solve, um, because that is what's going to lead you to the most fruitful path, whether that is you stepping in to use your talent to solve that issue, or it's you stepping in to use your connections to solve that issue, or if you're fortunate enough to have the money to step in yeah. and help solve those issues. You know, I think... That is a huge way to do that. So I think you're spot on with uh, what you said. I, I, you know, again, we're, 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 we're in the same sea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, so we're, you know, we may be floating on boats that are in different directions, different mm -hmm. sizes, different, all sorts of things. But in the, in the end, we're all on the same, cast onto the same water. Um, those, those three out of four African-American children are not going anywhere. Right. They're there. Um, that human capital is part of our tapestry. You can't just not look at it. 
Um, it's more than simply guilt. Mm -hmm. It's understanding how do we sustain ourselves, and particularly if you have kids. Yeah. On that note, like, I, I could keep talking to you forever. This has been so fun and interesting. <laughs> but we are only live for an hour. So yeah. I think this is honestly the perfect spot to kind of wrap up the conversation. And as a reminder, guys listening, Dr. Schwartz's TEDx Memphis <laughs> Talk can be found anytime. If you want to watch it to be able to see the slides, go visit YouTube. Just type in the search bar, Dr. David Schwartz, TED. Bam, it pops up for you. So thank you so much for being here with what us. What a pleasure. Like, this was so fun. Yeah. I love getting to meet, like, you're a board member for us at New Memphis, and it's really cool to get to interact with you guys outside of, like, a formal meeting room sometimes. Well, as long as I get to interview you about Picasso. Oh, next please. Time next that. time we will have a, a, a reverse. That'll be the next interview. So I'm here for it. I'll get it on the books, everybody. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye. All right, guys, thank you so much for being with us for another episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. Um, before we leave you today, we have a couple of end of show announcements. AT, what's on deck? So I am so excited to invite each and every one of you listening to join us virtually on May 25th for our Celebrate What's Right, the Future of Food. So this virtual panel is generously sponsored by First Horizon Foundation and Blue Cross, meh, tongue twister, Blue Cross <laughs> Blue Shield of Tennessee. So again, First Horizon Foundation and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee made this virtual event possible on May 25th. This event seeks to explore Memphis's unique food scene and discuss what the future holds. So Memphis has turned into not just a culinary destination, but a city with a food conscience. Yes. Um, it is, it's really becoming the epicenter of entrepreneurial activity, and we're seeing an explosion in locally owned businesses. So whether that's food trucks, coffee connoisseurs, everybody out there loves a brewery to, you Cheers, know, your, 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 your <laughs> brick real? and mortar restaurants, <laughs> like it could be any and all. We are like, we're moving it all forward. Because they grow here, they're supporting us here locally, boosting our economy and giving us yummy treats and filling <laughs> our bellies, which, I mean, who doesn't love? Yes. So this event is focused on paving a path for entrepreneurship and success in the culinary space. But it's really kind of drilled down to its core is about equitable access in the culinary and food scene. And we are so, so, so excited about our rock star panelists. Kelly English, Sabine Langer, Marika Wiley, and our moderator, Whitney Hardy. So we really, really, really think you should join us. I think it's going to be a fabulous conversation, even if you're not into food, which if you're not, I mean, come on. But I think everybody... It's like, who are you if you're not into Memphis food, first of all? <laughs> like, is this the podcast for you? Maybe not. I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> I'm not sure this is the city for you. Just kidding. We welcome everyone <laughs> yes, here. Yes, we do. But I really think everybody is going to come away from this virtual panel with something exciting and some new insights. Yeah. So please join us on May 25th. And you can learn more about that event at newmemphis.org. Yes, guys, please come. These panelists are, I, I know I say this word all the time. I say they're rock stars, but truly they are. They're doing so many cool things. And AT has crafted a very cool story with this event. So come support us and support these local entrepreneurs that are building such an amazing scene in our community. And we'll see you, hopefully see you there. And we'll see you next Tuesday on Meanwhile in Memphis. See you later. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you in partnership with WYXR, produced by New Memphis and hosted by Anna Mullins Ellis and Christy Mullen. For more information, please visit newmemphis.org. Audio for this show is recorded and produced by the OAM Network. For more information, please visit pod901.com.